Hi everyone, welcome to the Transfer News Central podcast. I'm James. I'm hosting today with my good friends, regulars, oh. Johnny and Jack. <laughs> I'm, I'm touched. Hi guys. Yeah, lovely to be here. Yeah, very happy to be here. This is our third episode. Mm. It already feels like a nice little habit to do this every week. It does, it does, yeah. Getting a routine, aren't we? We're yeah, getting into a routine yeah. and it's nice. We all like routines. We've got a lot to talk about today. Just a little um, kind of roadmap for people who are listening. We're going to talk about a little bit about Spurs. Andombele obviously been heavily linked this week and getting close to joining. We might go to Chelsea, talk about how a club with a transfer ban managed to sign a player. <laughs> Um, which is quite an achievement. Only Chelsea. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think then we're going to go to go to Spanish football, talk about Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, maybe PSG, because there's links with all those those clubs are all kind of tied together in a transfer triangle. And then maybe we'll go to Newcastle and have a look at what's going on there, because that's been an eventful week up in Tyneside. So, um, and then there may be other things that come up and, you know, Wan-Bissaka has gone to Manchester United, um, so that may come up as well. So We can't do a podcast, James, without talking about Manchester United, come on. No, no, I suppose we can't, no. Um, not this summer anyway, because they're spending a lot of money. That's where we're going, so um, I think we should start with, I mean, yeah, we should probably start with Manchester United, actually, while we're talking about it. Okay, that sounds amazing. As we're recording... Um, literally, I think about an hour before we started recording, Wan-Bissaka to Manchester United was confirmed. Five-year contract, one-year option to uh, longer. I think it's one of the longest contracts Man United's ever given a new signing as well, um, if, you, if, you, if you count the six years. <laughs> um, we've talked about this one a lot here. How do people, just a little, I mean, we're only going to talk about this briefly, but how does this kind of reflect on Man United's transfer policy this summer? I mean, like we've already said, like uh, it's a positive signing for them. It's, it's a young player that we've seen. We've seen all the stats from last season. You have to put him in that sort of elite level after just one season of right backs and defenders. Wingers were going constantly against him and he wouldn't let them pass. The stats show that. And I think the biggest thing that may be an issue in this move to United is just how well he can adapt to being maybe a bit more on top of games and um, I guess attacking sense is going to be called into play because um, at Crystal Palace how they play there's no dig on Crystal Palace because I love Palace but they don't dominate games and majority of the time they are defending especially when they are playing the top six teams Um, so now in his role at Manchester United you're going to probably see him having to defend a bit more in the opposition half he's going to have to um, put in a bit more crosses and I don't think that he cannot do that because I think it's it could well be in his arsenal. He's a, he is a converted striker slash winger. So um, I think it would be rude to say that, but it's a positive signing for United. And um, I think it shows what this transfer policy is going to be with them targeting young players. And I can only see it as a positive, especially for all the United fans that maybe were a bit scared of seeing Ashley Young start at right back for them next season. Yeah, I mean, I'd, <laughs> yeah. I'd echo those thoughts as well, really. I think um, we've we sort of said it for the past two episodes, actually, haven't we? How, uh, you know, wan is brilliant defensively at one point, had the best tackle success rate in the division as a fullback and uh, that's no mean feat especially when we're always looking towards sort of offensive contributions for our modern day fullbacks forgetting almost the importance of actually being first and foremost good defensively and uh, make sure that uh, you no one can get by on your side of the pitch but yeah I think I agree with Deck actually I think that it's um, more of a result of Palace being the way they are that maybe Aaron Wambisaka wasn't given the opportunity to demonstrate those attacking qualities as opposed to Aaron Wambisaka being a poor offensive fullback I think it's clear his strengths are defensive 
defensive, but at Man United, I'm sure he will be given the time to improve those contributions when bombing forward. I mean, I remember against Burnley, he got into some very offensive positions, actually, uh, when Palace took the game to us, unfortunately, uh, to my team, sorry, and actually won the game 3-1. Are you telling me you're a Burnley fan? I didn't know this, Johnny. This is breaking news. Yes, well... It is, it is. Well, actually, to be fair to the listeners, we've not actually spoken very much about Burnley. So they are they are now blown away, mind blown. Ooh, you know, everyone's losing their minds. But anyway, I am a Burnley fan. And at one point, he did get into an offensive position in the uh, final third. Played a lovely slide rule pass across the box when he could have just launched it into the box. It, it didn't have to be so careful with his pass. He found Batshuayi and he put, he put the ball into the back of the net. Really good pass, really good finish. So that suggests that he does have an intelligence when he gets into those positions. And that example there was a really nice example of, of good end product so hopefully for him and hopefully for Man United he's able to do that more at a club of a bigger stature and when a club that wants to take games to the opposition as opposed to the other way around yeah absolutely I agree with everything you said really and we've covered Wan-Bissaka the, the saga uh, the Wan-Bissaka saga for the last couple of episodes they wanted him all summer and now they finally got him can I just add, actually, uh, James, uh, there was a tweet, actually, with regards to United about uh, Rashford potentially signing a new deal. Simon Stone tweeted, it would be good news for United fans to hear that Rashford may be close to signing a new deal, which is not quite the £350,000 a week that were, was initially reported, but still a significant improvement on his current wage. I don't get how that's good news. Well, I do in a sense that Rashford's a really, you know, promising player with, with great ability. But to me, it's almost like it's praising mediocrity. Yeah, I don't think he's a. Even if it's not the three hundred grand a week, if it's two hundred, even if it's two hundred grand a week, I'm sorry, but he's not yet proved enough that he's that he's a two hundred grand a week player. He's a hundred, hundred and fifty grand a week player. Like I say, praising mediocrity, it's not going to get a club that wants to get back to the top to the top you know it's not going to be the way I'm going to do a quick comparison with stats here so Raheem Sterling 17-18 season got 18 goals and 11 assists in 33 Premier League appearances and the season that's just gone he got 17 goals and 10 assists in 34 appearances in the Premier League these are the Premier League statistics and then towards the end of that second season he got a significant pay rise but everyone was saying you know what he's deserved that he's earned it he's played his way up there and he's warranted that pay rise Marcus Rashford 17-18 season 7 goals and 5 assists in 30 five appearances and then 10 goals and six assists in 33 appearances and that's not a, not in the same ballpark as Sterling and all of a sudden he might even be getting paid more than Sterling is I mean that is ridiculous isn't it that is everything that is literally everything that is wrong with Manchester United right now and it's the Sanchez effect as well as well I mean, like that, that, the repercussions of them signing Sanchez are going to be felt for a long time you know they need to get rid of him I mean honestly they need to get rid of him well reports like this it's like one step forward with the Wan-Bissaka deal and then one step backwards it's not in a sense because they're keeping one of the more talented players and don't get me wrong when Marcus Rashford's on form and I'm sure everyone can see it for themselves he's a very very top level player he's, he's capable of amazing things but he's not been doing that consistently enough to be demanding such crazy wages and it's almost like they're getting the pants pulled down do they not take fully agree with you and I think the consistency is the biggest issue in football like that's especially been United's issue in recent times because you look at when Solskjaer first came in and they looked unbeatable and then now we're talking about them after the season after that horrible spell and they're this awful team again so and that, that's been the United's biggest issue and especially Marcus Rashford because he came onto the like came onto the scene when he was very young so and he's still so young that's the biggest thing there and to garner that that much money it's a lot of money a week, do you know what I mean? And like like you said, James, it is the whole Sanchez saga. That's what's caused this. Is like if Sanchez is sat on the bench every week and he's getting paid double what I'm getting paid, why can't I receive that money from this club? Because I love this club. I kiss the badge every time I score from Manchester, do you know what I mean? 
I think in terms of negotiating the contract and United's team thinking about that, they could not let Rashford go for free. I don't think that you could annoy the fans of anything more there. I think he is more important to sign to a new contract than David De Gea, even though David De Gea out of the last six years has been player of the year four times. Just because of how young he is, the potential is there. He's one of England's starting strikers, you would say. And uh, they couldn't allow him to go. So if he's saying, yeah, if he's pushing for that higher wage, I think that is one specific example where they will buckle. You like to think, especially that was another positive from the Wamba Saka deal, is that he the the big news thing coming out of it that I saw a lot of the tabloid headlines was he's times his wages by eight times. Yeah, and that's because he was on ten grand a week at Crystal Palace, mm-hmm. and now he's on eight grand a week at United. Still a lot of money, but it's very modest. Which you would guess he would go into the starting lineup for a starting Manchester United player so um that's what you want to see more of that is the positive with these sort of young english signings because it's like a stepping stone and then it's like okay you've played your three years into your five-year deal and you um you want a new deal so let's bump you up to 150k because you've earned it and that i think that's what we want to see isn't it that's my opinion on rashford just because even though i think you two are completely right with it i do think it's a very very unique situation with manchester united at the same time, though, I'd just say, though... Yeah. I mean, you might right. Imagine Raheem Sterling, who's been brilliant for Manchester City. There was a point where he was trying to clamber for a greater deal, but they looked to give it him. There was talk whether he would get it or whether he wouldn't get it. He knuckled down. He kept working hard. He delivered time after time for Manchester City. He got that deal in the end through perseverance, through hard work. I don't like... I mean, I, I respect all you're saying, Dave, but like the idea... It's all about player power, isn't it? And yeah. I don't like the idea of a player being able to do that to his football club. There's no player that should be any bigger than Manchester United. Absolutely. And if Sterling hadn't delivered like he'd consistently did, and he continually demanded the pay rise that, that, that he's now got, but if he didn't perform and get and deserve that, then Man City wouldn't have it. They would say, you know what? You haven't earned it. You haven't deserved it. Yeah. You can go on your back, son. Yeah. I remember watching that documentary series about Manchester City when they were talking about how they do players' contracts. And they're saying, like, you know, we might sign a player on a five-year contract, but if they play well enough to earn another contract in that first season, we'll give them another contract and maybe a longer contract because they've earned it. They don't pay... One of the reasons they didn't buy Sanchez was because I think his ridiculous wage wage demands and they didn't want the problem that Manchester United now have. Um, I think that was... I think that's the reason they didn't sign him because I think they're very kind of... You earn your contracts. You don't just get them because you've got ability. Again, it's another example of how Man City is so well run. Um, and okay, so we're going to segue. <laughs> there was no connection. It wasn't like this last week. It wasn't um, like this last we're week. We're transfer. Well, it's difficult to segue out uh, of Manchester United, to be honest. Um, but <laughs> I think one thing we need to talk about this week is the irony of. Um, first, this is a transfer news podcast, but the irony of a, tra- of a club that has a transfer ban being Chelsea. Um, this week, um, signing a player. Now, albeit a player that was already was basically already at the club, but the only reason that they can sign they're signing Matteo uh, this week that Chelsea are about to sign Matteo Kovacic on a five year deal, forty million. I think it's thirty five million rising to forty million. Um, it's not officially been confirmed yet, but it's all but been but confirmed. It will be confirmed this weekend. The only reason they can do that is because he's already registered as a Chelsea player, so they don't have to re-register him, which is what they can't do. So basically his registration will continue or just become a permanent transfer. And they have to do that by the end of June. 
So by the time you know this goes out, it will have happened. Um, otherwise, he has to go back to Real Madrid. God, God forbid. God forbid he has to go back to Real Madrid. And Real Madrid need the money because they're going on a massive spending spree. I think um, Real Madrid wanted 50 million and Marina got them down. Marina Granovskaya got them down to 35. Um, so that's another masterclass of negotiation by her. James, do you think if they didn't have the transfer ban, would Chelsea have signed him permanently? No, I, no. Definitely no, not. They wouldn't. They would have signed a midfielder, I think, because of Loftus Cheek's injury, which um, I've been hearing this week is likely to keep him out till January. It's worse than Callum Hudson Madoy's injury, apparently. So, uh, yeah, he was going to be out for a long time. They have Matty Mount and Ross Barkley who can play that, that role. Um, Matteo Kovacic, and we were talking about this a bit before we recorded. The irony is he was signed as an attacking midfielder about a year ago. And but what's become clear this season after his two assists and no goals in, I think it was, 51 games. <laughs> that um, He's not an attacking midfield player. You think? I think, I think, what, I think his best performance... As a, I mean, I'm a Chelsea fan, I'm not going to lie about that. His best performances this year have come when he's played deeper, kind of alongside Kante. He's quite dynamic, he's got a lot of energy, he's got great technique, he's a good dribbler. Uh, he complements kind of Kante quite well. He's the kind of guy, if you're playing a 4-2-3-1... He's perfect for that with Kante. Better than Jorginho, especially in Frank Lampard, his manager. They, they've got a high-energy, aggressive kind of style of play. He's very suited to that. Um, apparently, Frank Lampard sanctioned the move as well. But he's not manager, James. How can he How can he do that? He's not ma- no, he's not manager yet. He's not manager yet, but come on. You know what happens <laughs> behind the scenes, don't we? Um, I don't think they would have signed him if Frank Lampard had expressed He said, no, I don't want him. Um, he's not going to play if I'm manager. It is Chelsea, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is Chelsea, yeah. But anyway, he's coming in. Well, he's not coming in. He's going to be part of the squad next year. And I think he'll be quite an important part of the squad next year. I think Lampard will use him better if Lampard's the manager. He will use him better than Richie Sorry used him. Can you not see the issue? Sorry, Johnny. Can you not see the issue there, though, that it, you probably wouldn't have signed him without the transfer ban? Like, I know I know he can play an integral part now, but it does not seem that it's just like, oh, we'll just bring him back in anyway. Because those stats that you just said, 51 games and one goal and two assists. Like, there's other players that get absolutely ridiculed for anything like that. And I haven't really seen anything like that for Kovacic. It seems to be this is just a positive signing because they've got a transfer ban. And I don't disagree with but I I just feel like that it's completely brushed over there that it just seems like, oh, we'll just bring him back. I actually think he's a good player. I think he's got potential to improve. He can play the deep role. He can play... A kind of a right centre midfield as well. He's kind of a good player to have. He's got Champions League experience and he's won the Champions League with Real Madrid. Um, we're playing in the Champions League this year. So he's the kind of player that's useful to have around and he'll probably play a fair number of games. Um, I mean, like whenever when everyone's fit, I think it becomes different because Frank Lampard's a big fan of Mason Mount. I think he rates him very, very highly. Um, and obviously Ruben Loftus-Cheek, if Loftus-Cheek comes back and he's anything like how he was, uh, how he finished the season, he'll be starting regularly. So you would think he might end up being Kante and Mason Mount and Loftus-Cheek. But uh, so we wouldn't need to buy another midfielder. And I think the, the, the thing is as well with the transfer ban, we need bo- and an injury. Chelsea needs bodies in midfield because the only alternatives they have are Bakayoko and Danny Drinkwater. Because you need five or six players for that for, for three positions. No. So that, that, I think that's the thinking. And he's not actually that expensive. We're not signing anyone else this summer. Our summer spending is £35 million. And that's before we sold, or before we take into account all the sales, which is going to be a lot. We've already sold Eden Hazard for £88 million, £130 million. So I don't think it's 
a bad signing. Uh, I, I I completely agree with practically everything you both just said. Uh, I don't think no, I don't think he would have been signed if the transfer ban wasn't in place. But yes, I do think he will be an important signing because of the importance. I think of a, I think a squad player is a good definition for Kovacic. It's the one that's going to play his fair share of minutes, but maybe he's the first name on the team sheet. A bit like last year, I think in many ways, you know, he played a lot last year, as you say, without necessarily contributing in terms of goals and direct assists. But like you say, James, I think that wasn't necessarily his game. I think maybe Sarri maybe played him a bit too far forward and maybe in that eight position, maybe as the attacking eight that was supposed to get goals and, and, and assists. He was much better in a deeper position. And I think actually when Chelsea were playing really well under Sarri uh, and playing really good football, he was actually performing quite well as well. I mean, he had a really good um, Europa League final, I thought. Yes, he was excellent in that, in that game. I also thought there was another game against Liverpool at Stamford Bridge where I thought he played really well. I thought he played really well in that game and uh, Chelsea put in a really good performance that day as well. So I think there's certainly something there. Very good technically, as you say. Good passer, good at holding the ball, good at linking up. I think I think the assists uh, statistic is certainly a little bit misleading because I think he's quite a good passer of the ball, but maybe not that final pass. Maybe it's the link-up yes, passes that he does very well. I think is what it is. Uh, but just to come back as well, because I know you're not a big fan of Jorginho, James, and that's fair enough because you are a Chelsea fan <laughs> and you have much more right to say it than I do. However, I do think last year in a defensive midfield position uh, or a reduced position, it was, as it was also called, he did a very decent job considering all the abuse that he did get. Maybe not in terms of his um, his tackling like we expected from Angolo Kante, but in just dictating the play and the tempo of, the, of Chelsea. And I think when he didn't play, it was definitely felt. You could definitely see that loss. Yeah, I agree. To Sarri's team. Now, in a 4 2 3 1, do you not think that having Kante and Jorginho, someone who does the defensive inceptions of the tackles, alongside someone who does the lovely passing and distribution of the ball, do you not think that could be an excellent double pivot? I do. I really do. I'm not one of those who dislikes Jorginho. I think he's, I think he's an excellent player. Technically, he's good at passing the ball, he's good at linking up the play, that kind of thing. And you're right. In a, in a, I think in a double pivot, alongside Kante, he could be quite effective. Um, and if we if we did that this season, it wouldn't surprise me. And also, I think it would work. I've just done a bit of research on. I mean, I'm thinking about Frank Lampard potentially being the manager, and the style of play that he plays is quite a high energy, quite intense, very much like Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. And I'm just I, I don't have anything against Jorginho at all. I'm just not sure whether he fits in with that style of play now. It may be that he does. It may be that Lampard finds a way to use him and he's quite a pragmatic coach as well. He can adapt. So he may well do that. The only thing I don't want to see from Jorginho is him playing as the deepest midfield player. No. Because I don't think he's good enough defensively and he's not strong enough physically as well to play that role in the Premier League. In the in the Italian League, in the Spanish League, yeah, he can play that role easy. Got loads more time on the ball in those leagues. But in the English League, he needs someone alongside him to do that, and which is why. And often we got walked all over when he played that role. And like, I mean, Manchester City six 0 you know, and Bournemouth four 0 you know, they, those he didn't, and, and even against Liverpool as well, he was poor defensively. I fully agree with you, James. But do you not feel like I know it's an issue for Chelsea with the transfer ban? But do you not feel like it's just a lot of settling for mediocrity, like? 54 games Jorginho played this season, two goals, no assists. Yeah, I know. That's what everyone, that's the statistic everyone uses. I mean, it's, he's got zero, he's got zero assists and he's playing like a per. I mean, like if you think Perla, when he played kind of the deep wine midfielder, he got loads of assists. But, I mean, it's a difficult thing though, because it's quite a specific role that he plays and not everyone understands it. And there were so many chances for assists that, he, that were missed last season. He put some really, really lovely balls over the top that were missed. Barkley, Higuain, uh, Giroud, to name a few, and Morata that should have been uh, finding the back of the net but didn't. 
also when you do play that role i feel like it's more the pre-assist role you know the person who plays that killer ball over the top for maybe someone running in maybe a pedro or a will or a willian or a hazard to then run in and play another ball across and maybe they get the assist i don't feel like it's necessarily somewhere where you know you can get i know what you mean yeah yeah. Uh, but even even then, there's plenty of examples where you think, how has he not got an assist because of all the you know the openings that he has actually created that have been squandered? Yeah, and I'm sure he's really excited to see um, Olivier Giroud and, and Tammy Abraham as his, uh, his strikers for this season. Although, to be fair, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tammy Abraham. I really am. I think he's a little better than people think he is. Giroud's a very good striker for the other players to work, or work off. Maybe not the 20-goal man, but someone who's going to help the team get more goals. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Can, can I just say I absolutely love Giroud. He's one of my favourite strikers because he's the perfect example of, yes, he might not score, but that doesn't make him a bad striker. Do you know, I, I, sound, I, sound, a bit, um, I sound a bit stupid now because I just criticised Jorginho for not having assists as a midfielder, but um, it, I just feel like Giroud always does the job and I think the best example we have of that in recent memory was at the World Cup last summer um, in that he scored no goals at that World Cup, but he started every single game for France and he played such an important role for them. Um, and I feel like he's always been like that maybe like I, I feel like he was never really respected at Arsenal and I feel like he's never really been properly respected at Chelsea so far because yeah. there's always been either Diego Costa or Higuain sort of ahead of him in the manager's head um, even though he's always been the guy to turn up and score when needed or get an assist when needed so I'm really ex- I'm really excited for him and I feel like it's a good season for him with these young strikers coming back that like you said Johnny he could sort really be that experienced head for that striking team yeah and I he's got a great attitude he's one of my favorite players at Chelsea because he's got this great attitude he's got a real winner's mentality and he works really really hard he shows up in the big games we see it at the cut semi-finals cut finals he he just shows up he gets really important goals and he does a lot like you say he does a lot for the team and he's got a big contribution to make on and off the pitch this year I think Lampard is going to love him because he loves players that work hard and have a good attitude. So you think he'll he'll love him. And I think him and Tommy Abraham will both play a fair share of games in all competitions this year. They could even play together because Lampard does sometimes play with the two up top. Um, that would be a good partnership, actually, if you think about it. Um, Tommy Abraham's got the pace and the movement and Giroud's good in the air. So it's your typical kind of English <laughs> strike partnership. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right about Giroud. And he was, I'm glad, I was really happy when we signed him because of that. He's such an effective player. I mean, you know, 18 million we paid for him. It's, just, it's a bargain as far as I'm concerned, for given what he's done for, for the club. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about Giroud. Nice sort of segue into Arsenal um, because um, they've been heavily linked with uh, Wilfred Zahar in the last couple of days. And there's been, I've read, read articles saying that Zaha wants to go to Arsenal, that he's willing to force the move, that um, Arsenal are getting ready to bid for him. And Crystal Palace saying they don't want to sell and they want 80 million for him. That would mean they'd have brought in 140 million for 130 million for two players this summer. <laughs> um, so, what are people? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, th- I think if Palace um, sells Zaha and Wambisaka, then you're looking at it and thinking these could be serious trouble for the drop if they don't, you know, invest that money wisely. Uh, Wambisaka was, you know, excellent for them last year, a real defensive shield for them on that right hand side. But then Zahar is the talisman, isn't he? He's the guy who gets the goals, the guy who gets the assists, uh, the guy who they look to in any sense of adversity. Sometimes uh, Palace have gone with 10 players behind the ball 
including the goalkeeper. And Zahar up there by himself, expected to work miracles. Um, he is probably too good. Well, he is too good for the team, really. He deserves better than that. He deserves a team that's going to be more progressive. But at the same time, Palace are, will be absolutely terrified at the prospect of losing Zahar. And you can't blame them for what for putting such a hefty price tag on him, especially when Man United actually have um, a clause in that in the contract when he's out of Palace that they'll get a percentage of the of the any transfer fee uh, for Zahar. So you know that, that means Palace are even more inclined to make sure that they get a lot of money for him. But how are how are Arsenal going to be able to spend all this money because they're linked with Zaha? They're in talks with Kieran Tierney from Celtic. I'm doing the maths here, you two, and that's equaling about over a hundred million so far. And all I've seen is that Arsenal have this magical numbered budget of forty million, and it just seems like a bit of a joke, doesn't it? Like surely they've got more than that. I think they might be selling players as well, mightn't they? I think it's forty million plus sales. Oh, okay. I think that's what, I think that's what it is. Who, do, who would you expect them to sell then? Because I've seen Aubameyang, but like, where's your goals coming from next season I mean, if you sell Aubameyang? You say that, but Lacazette got also his fair share of goals. And also Unai Emery did often refuse to pair them together as a two. He did play them towards the end as a two, but often he felt like it was more appropriate for whatever reason to go either with a 4-2-3-1 with Aubameyang or Lacazette on the left, or he'd put one of them on the bench. Or he'd even do three at the back and often use only use one of them up top. So there is potential that maybe Emery sees and sees the, sees an option to sell Abamyang, make Lacazette the main striker, and then he's got some more creativity, I guess, in Wilfred Zaha. But then again, I agree with you. I'm not sure how the fans would take to selling the top goalscorer in the Premier League, well, joint top goalscorer in the Premier League on last season's statistics. We've just seen how difficult it is to have a 20-plus goal-a-season striker at the moment. Do you know what I mean? They're very rare. And if you do have one, we're finding that they cost a lot of money. So, like, as much as it would make sense because Arsenal are desperate in terms of a really good um, defensive addition, um, a really good winger that they sort of need, there, there are holes on in their starting eleven that need to be filled. They haven't even really replaced Aaron Ramsey. And I haven't seen much talk of them bringing in another midfielder so far. And he was so important for them. So you have a Bamiyang who scored 22 goals just in the Premier League. And I think he um, chipped in for a lot more in the Europa League as well. Even if they sell him for 50 plus million, I don't think anyone can justify that. Yeah, I think it's very difficult because he wants to advance his career. I mean, he's, what is he, 26, 27? Yeah, he wants to he wants to play Champions League football. He wants to... Uh, Aubameyang is actually 30. Oh, no, no, I'm talking about Zaha. Oh, Zaha, sorry. Zaha is wants is like twenty like mid mid to late twenties wants to play Champions League football wants to play at a bigger club than Palace you can understand that a player of his quality wanting to do that but at the same time you can see from Palace's position they don't want to lose him um, and they've got if I don't think they'll let him go until they've got someone else lined up to come in or well, a couple of players I think they need to sign a striker and a winger to replace him they need to sign two players to replace him you you, you do worry actually though I think I, if I'm a Palace fan I'm really worried because obviously there is an inevitability about Zaha going but it's about how the team adapt to that because it's not just going to be you can't replace the hard like for like really uh, if you're Crystal Palace you have to sort of look at it and think well every other player now has to work you know 10% harder you have to run 10% more because it, it, you know it's going to be really really difficult because sometimes you got the sense that Zahar won games on his own and he did you know he was so talented he, he is so talented he'd take players on he'd light up a Selhurst Park um, and he'd really be the talisman for them and if they do lose that it's going to be it's going to be really really huge for them often many people said he was the only he was the Pal- Crystal Palace attacking force I don't necessarily agree with that but he did he did contribute a 
lot for Palace going forward. They do have other good players as well, let's not forget. They've got Andros Townsend, I think, often goes unnoticed, with Zahar being, you know, such a prominent attacking figure, but he he does contribute with his fair share of attacking contributions. Milivojevic as well, very good from the penalty spot. <laughs> also very also very good. It wasn't a joke, it was just a stat. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I just, I just love, I love players like that where all their goals come from penalties, and he is one of those where he's a perfect example of it. Sorry, yeah, he's also very good at sort of helping dictate play from deep, and maybe in that kind of double pivot, he's very good at that as well. Definitely. Also, we've got to remember that Batshuayi, who did quite well at Palace, actually, will probably not go to Palace for uh, probably because he'd struggle to pay, I imagine, his wage, and uh, Chelsea try and probably force a hard bargain, I imagine, for Batshuayi. Yes, they would. Yeah, I think they would want thirty-five million for him. Yeah. So potentially losing Batshuayi, Zahara and Wan-Bissaka is difficult for Palace and it's not always easy to reinvest money when you're a club nearer the bottom of the table. You know, you've got to consider things such as wages, such as, uh, you know, other players, you might have the money but players might not be as eager to go there because they're not as ambitious as other clubs that might want them. So it's, they will find themselves in a bit of a predicament. I do feel it is inevitable that Zahara will go because you can't keep a player as good as he is against his will because it will only end toxically so. I always think it's a real shame because I sort of had in my head that a perfect situation for Wilfred Zaha would have been him going to um, actually Borussia Dortmund in Germany because he would have been a great replacement for Christian Pulisic who was joining Chelsea. But unfortunately, obviously, they've bought Thorgan Hazard and um, uh, Julian Brandt. And that, that's that sort of like for like on that right hand side there. I think Julian Brandt will probably play a bit more centre mid next season. But um, it's a real shame because I thought Dortmund could have really had the cash there to come in and, and buy him. And he would would have been really suited for them, especially in, in the um, Champions League. I just think as well, that's cost efficiency, though, isn't it? You know, they've got a bargain in Julian Brandt. 21 million, was it? 21 million euros, 21 million pounds. So clever, so clever this season, so clever. And, uh, you know, Thorgan uh, Hazard was also relatively cheap as well. When you when you look at Zahara and figures are sort of 80 million pounds, again, you can't blame Crystal Palace. But if you're Borussia Dortmund, who are working on, tied to, I'd say, well, not quite Arsenal budget levels, but tied to the most of the European elite, then, you know, you have to be, you have to be clever and they've said, certainly been clever this summer. Oh, 100% because they've spent um, £120 million on five players and they've all filled um, different spots. So, And I don't think they're done yet because I still think they'll um, sell a couple of players. But that's but we can talk about German football another time. I love me some German football. Yeah, I think... Uh, okay, we've just done Arsenal, so that makes a nice segue into Spurs. Lots of nice segues. Nice. Um, yeah, it's my new phrase. It's a nice segue. Um, and yeah, we're talking about, I think, yeah, because Spurs have been in the headlines this week. Two players, Jack Clark from Leeds, um, which is apparently very close to being done. Um, and, and there's, there's, there's rumours you'll go back to Leeds on loan, possibly, for a year. Um, and then, obviously, the big deal for Spurs was Dembele from Lyon. And, and Dembele, yeah. And Dembele, yeah, because they've got a Dembele at Lyon as well, a striker. But this is the midfielder, um, very, very good player. I think it will be a club record signing for Spurs. Apparently, their first signing for like 500 days, which is crazy when you think about it. It's a good statement of intent by Spurs. Really good player. Um, obviously, sort of played in a 4-2-3-1 at Lee and in that kind of double pivot. But many people touted him as sort of a potential replacement for Fernandinho at City. Such uh, was his ability to come out with the ball, play with the ball, very confident and composed with his distribution but also very good tackler, interceptor, a reader of the game. So he's, you know, he has been 
uh, seen by many as one of the next big things in terms of a deep line midfielder, deep line sort of defensively and offensively very, very good. Um, I think he would be a brilliant signing for Spurs because many people think that since Moussa Dembele has uh, sort of got, well, he I think towards the end of his Spurs career, he was fading, but in his prime, he was absolutely incredible in terms of a deeper midfielder that could push forward that could chip in with the odd goal and odd assist but generally was just uh, so respected for his energy levels for his combative levels for the fact that he could basically he was running games for Spurs and he did it in a way that he wasn't maybe like I say the flashiest player the one that everyone thought oh yeah he's the, the main guy but he did it quietly like subtly and, and and when Spurs lost him or when he when he wasn't quite as effective when he was on the way in a little bit you know they lost a little bit of something to Spurs in that midfield they lost a bit of balance they lost that assurance they lost that fighter and in a way, they got a bit of that back last year when they got Musa Sissoko converted from a right midfielder who wasn't doing very well. They brought him into the centre of midfield and he was a relatively decent box-to-box midfielder. He, he wasn't a very... He's never been the best technical player, but he is a player who um, certainly looks a lot more at home in the middle of the park. But I, what, what I would say is that he was never quite Musa Dembele, but just a revitalised Sissoko. I'm sure, he'll, I'm sure he'll still play a prominent role next season. But it would be much more helpful for him if he was playing against someone like someone like Endombele, who could take on board the distribution levels, the technical side of, of the midfield, which would allow Sissoko to then focus on what he's good at, which is being almost like a powerhouse of getting the ball forward, uh, carrying the ball forward, and then next sitting next to him, Endombele could uh, distribute the ball with more with a more technical ease. So I think that could be a really good signing. As for the Leeds player, I think that's a very Spurs signing anyway in itself. I mean, Deli Ali and others uh, who they've got from the lower leagues, they're often linked with a lower league player, and I've not seen too much of Jack Clark but from what I gather he's a very promising young player and I'm sure this isn't one that's necessarily going to be sorting week in week out but someone for the future who may play the odd game It'll, they'll see it as like a project like Deli Ali came in as a relatively unknown for anyone who wasn't familiar with MK Don. He obviously comes in and actually after a, after uh, being bedded into the team, he actually makes a brilliant impact and he's still one of, well, he's one of the most integral players in the team right now. So I'm sure Jack Clark will be looking at that and thinking, using that as some kind of inspiration. Tottenham is a good place for young players to go. I'm almost certain he won't be someone who's, you know, a regular in the first team. I think it'll be more someone who they use to develop with the first team in training and see how he goes and, and hope and they'll hope in the future that he, he blossoms like some of Spurs' other youngsters have. No, I fully agree with you. I think um, Jack Clark is still only um, eighteen, so there's a there's a long a long way for him to go still. And I think um, twenty two appearances for for Leeds last year in the Championship, which is a lot for an eighteen year old, because I feel like the Championship has really upped its level the last couple of years, um, chipping in with a couple of goals and a couple of assists. So I think he can do things for Tottenham. But like you say, Johnny, like it is definitely they're not spending nearly ten million here just for him to walk into the first team because even he probably knows he's probably not going to walk into that first team of Tottenham because they are a top top team now um, that have to be taken seriously so I feel like um, what he can do is really try and be developed there but it's that is that same issue because we saw it most recently talking about Zaha again where he went to United out of the championship when Palace had been promoted and um, just didn't work. And whether that was the situation with um, him being Fergie's sort of last signing as Moyes came in, you don't really know what the issues were there. There was a lot of rumours, etc. Some of them more silly than others. But you like to think that Jack Clark can go to Tottenham and um, not do what Zaha did um, at United and sort of really uh, come into his own and, and sort of try and force his way into the first team and, um, and become a, a top player for them. I do love how Spurs build their, their team. They make very clever signings when they do sign players. Like Lucas Moore has turned out to be an excellent signing for them. 
they just thought, well, Dele Alley, what a signing that was. Five million pounds. And look what he is now. He's worth, 10, he's worth 20 times that at least. So, <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 you know, if they had more money to spend, they would be doing really, really well. Because when they spend money, they tend to spend it quite well, which is a change from how Spurs used to be. But certainly in the last few years, they've spent it well. So the Spurs are going to be stronger next year. I'm sure of that. They'll be, I'm confident that the top three next year will be um, Manchester City, Liverpool and, and Spurs, I think. Um, they'll be the three strongest teams next year. What about Burnley, James? How can you disrespect Johnny like that? Burnley, yeah, you know they might um, they might challenge for the title. Yeah, if the title is finishing tenth place. Um, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, I mean, being honest, like I, I actually got a lot of. I was saying this before. I've got a lot of respect for Burnley, and especially for Sean Dyche, and you know the budget that they have to be where they are and to stay in the Premier League for as long as they have is an achievement in itself. So you know, it deserves a lot of credit. You know, I, I, they're one of the clubs I don't want. I don't. I don't ever want to go down just because I think they they run well. I'm not just saying that because Johnny's here. I'm actually. <laughs> I do actually think that. Um, like I wanted Cardiff to go down last year because of Neil Warnock. <laughs> Literally, that was it. Neil Warnock's their manager, so I want them to go down. I, I, found, I actually <laughs> found him so entertaining. I wanted them to stay up. I, don't, I just don't like him as a, as a human being. I don't know manager. Wow. He's going to listen to this, James, and he's going to be really, really upset. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it can be that evil stare that he, that meme that goes around on Twitter all the time. That that gift, that gift with him staring <laughs> at the camera. Uh, yeah, he, he was a character, though, wasn't he? He was a character. Oh yeah, he's a character. Yeah, he is a character. Yeah. Mm. So okay, Spurs. We were on Spurs, but um, looking at Ondembele, so that's French football, which brings us to kind of a transfer triangle involving PSG, and this is quite complex. So I'll, I'll try and explain it. Um, we're hearing a lot of sound, a lot of noises that Neymar wants to leave PSG and go to Barcelona, that PSG are not unhappy for him to go. And then we're hearing about Antoine Griezmann going to Barcelona as well. And we've just had Yao Felix going to Atletico Madrid for about 120 million, which is the Griezmann money. So you would expect that Griezmann is, is off because his buyout clause goes down the 1st of July, I think. I think Barcelona will sign him. But then there's this whole conundrum with Neymar. Like, what's going to happen? Because he's kind of making it clear he wants to leave PSG and PSG are kind of done with his antics. But he's on such high wages and the transfer fee is so high that uh, he could end up being stuck where he is. So what are people's thoughts on that kind of little triangle? Neymar's not going anywhere, in in my opinion. I, I can't see it happening this summer. There's too much that's already happened so far. I just can't see PSG either selling him. I can't see Barcelona putting agreeing a fee, especially with their whole thing with Griezmann. I feel like it would be a more one or the other. And I feel like recently we've seen um, them agree seem to have agreed a fee for Griezmann and that, that seems to be being thrown around. So I think Griezmann will go to Barca this summer and maybe it's something that maybe we'll see more of in January um, during the transfer window there or, or next summer. But I don't know how it's going to play out because Neymar seems to have made it very clear that he doesn't want to be there if you want to read into it like that. But I don't know what what's going to happen, if I'm honest, but I can't see that transfer happening this summer yeah. at all. I, I absolutely agree. I think that it's... I don't think there's a chance of it happening purely because of the money involved. Barcelona are not don't have infinite money to spend. They, they don't have 150, 200 million that it would cost, and then the wages as well. Uh, I think we talked about a little bit about this last week. I don't think that will happen. But I just find it interesting. There's this little tri- triangle of Yao Felix going from Atletico Madrid to going to Atletico Madrid. Sorry, Griezmann going to Barcelona, and then 
you have this Neymar situation as well, which is, you know, I saw someone say that Griezmann, that, that, that Griezmann and Neymar would go to Barcelona, which is not going to happen. No club has that amount of money, um, especially not with financial fair play. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. That's that, yeah, I mean, Barcelona and Real Madrid are going to be very strong next year, I think. 100%. I, I do agree with that. What, what do you think, Johnny? What do you think of Neymar? I don't think the Neymar thing, from what you've just both said, is going to happen because, as you say, of the money involved. It's crazy. Real Madrid have already spent too much and need to recuperate some of that back. Hence the Kovacic sale and a few of the other guys that are going to be going. And with Barcelona, it looks like, as we say, they're going for Griezmann. So I think, Neymar's pro- I think Neymar probably will end up going to Real Madrid in the future. If anywhere, any, uh, for, for, I don't think I don't think it, there's really a place for him back at Barcelona. Uh, but it's, I, don't, I certainly don't think it'll be this summer. In terms of Griezmann, actually, I think it's strange because Barcelona likes to play a four-three-three. Then you look at the the four-three-three at the moment. You got Suarez as the striker, Messi as the right-sided attacker, and then that'd leave Griezmann as the left-sided attacker. I don't necessarily see Griezmann as a left winger. Of, of sorts really I don't necessarily see him as that and we've seen that with Coutinho who's come in as a left winger and he's sort of he's looked a, a bit at odds with that position I'd say instead of his preferred cam slash attacking eight position uh, and he's sort of shoehorned in on that left hand side of the attacking three which is um, which, which hasn't really worked and you can look at you could maybe look at Griezmann and think mm, I'm not sure Griezmann's necessarily a left winger he's usually either a, a striker false nine position or number 10 so it'll be interesting to see how that works I actually think instead of playing the 4-3-3, Barcelona should maybe look to adapt slightly for that if Griezmann comes in, maybe a 4-3-1-2. You've got Messi or Griezmann in that 10 position and then the other one as the striker alongside Suarez. That might work better than having Griezmann on that left-hand side. But I think, it, I think you know, he's a very, very good player. He works very, very hard for the team. A very good finisher, linker of play, a good mover. We've seen him take responsibility for his country on many occasions as well as Atletico Madrid. So he's someone who doesn't shirk that responsibility. He's a, he's a big personality. He's got that ego that's the only danger I think maybe because I, rem- I remember I don't know if you can you guys can remember last season he made a Twitter announcement he built it up as though he was going to leave Atletico Madrid and then said I'm staying I remember this, yeah. and that's sort of- the announcement and I just thought well, what's the point in that that's just so like oh look at me kind of thing and there is a danger I think Griezmann, with Griezmann that his attitude he does have such a big ego he does have quite a big ego and maybe that gets slightly bruised with Messi and the others at Barcelona but then again yeah. but then again at with France, there's also quite a few big personalities in that dressing room, and you know he obviously does really well for France. In terms of Jao Felix as well, just to go on to that, um, you know we were talking about him last week, so listen to that podcast as well if you want to hear more. But what I would say is that you know, as you say, James, very excited player, he's a confident finisher. But what I've noticed with a lot of his goals is that he hits the ball with a lot of power, like really, really, really hard. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's it's quite different to the caress sort of finesse finishing you know, of an Henri or someone like that who runs through and delicately clips it into the corner. And you think, oh, that's very assured and confident. It's a different kind of finish. I'm, sure, I'm not saying it's a bad finish, but what I am saying is maybe if he's going through a rough patch or, or maybe not quite in the in, in the rich vein of form that it has been, he could see a lot of those powerful shots. You know, it, it's a slightly more erratic kind of finish. I find he might need to sort of develop his finish a little bit more throughout. But he's only 19. He's only 19, isn't he? And, he, and, I, and you just look, just watching him play, he's 30 goals and assists last season, Benfica. And, and, and Griezmann was very much for that Atletico Madrid, the player that not just scored goals, but contributed with assists and the link-up play as well. So 
you're not getting a like for like at the moment anyway, but you kind of potentially are. There's, there's certainly fragments of Griezmann in Jao Felix, I think. He's so young that he's that, that I feel like you're never going to get that like for like because the, the reason that that money is being thrown around is because this big word of developmental, do you know what I mean? Like of what he can, of what he can become with that sort of money, I sort of expect him to be better than Griezmann. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I, I sort of, I really wanted to get your guys' opinion on like PSG like sort of transfer policy because we spoke a lot about Neymar um, recently and where what what is he going to do and where is he going to go but like there actually hasn't been a lot of talk of them bringing many players in I know they're expected on Monday to bring in Ander Herrera on a free because his contract with United will officially be up but I actually haven't they obviously were rumoured for Delict a long time but they seem to have missed out on him they're constantly linked with David De Gea as well but like they, they seem still seem to be some quite some way off this sort of Champions League winner that they so desperately want to be who can you see them actually bringing in to sort of get that and especially if Neymar does leave or, or if he does stay oh, actually that would be a, I mean I, they have, I haven't really seen them linked with anyone that's the interesting thing like the story, all the stories I hear about PSG about players leaving I mean like like I mean Mbappe today yeah. there's a story that he's not going to sign a new contract with PSG and he wants to ultimately he wants to leave Real Madrid he's a long term target for Real Madrid there are rumours that his agent or family or whatever have already had preliminary discussions with him about long term getting a move to Real Madrid. I'm I'm absolutely convinced he will end up at Real Madrid. He plays with Liverpool on FIFA as well, so there's been links there. Yeah, I, think more, so. I think he's more concerned <laughs> about Real Madrid than Neymar is actually now. I don't think I'm not sure that Neymar will end up at Real Madrid. I'm not sure he will. I'm just thinking ahead this yeah. moment in time they look the most likely next summer to really go for it, I think. Yeah. I mean I'm just scared of I mean, if you can imagine Neymar, Hazard, you know, Jovic Yo, yeah, yeah. Um, Vincius, you know, he's yeah. another hugely talented player. I guess, actually, for Barca or Real Madrid, it's one of the two, isn't it? It's Mbappe or Neymar next summer. The really, I think the really big ones. And I suppose if Real Madrid look best poised for, to go for Neymar, but if they got Mbappe, then they probably they wouldn't go for both, I don't think, because it, you know, it'd cost them all the money in the world, almost, I think, to do that. So, um yeah, I think it's what prospect do you want at the moment, to be fair. Uh, when you put those two on the table, you're taking Mbappe all day long. Absolutely, yeah. He's got a better attitude, he's got more years on his side. It's not even to speak where he shouldn't. Whereas Neymar, there's still a bit of ambiguity there. So if Real Madrid don't come for him next summer, and you know Barca's got Griezmann, so you wouldn't expect them to go for him next summer, then it's a strange situation for him. It really is. If he wants to leave, Neymar. there's many people that's going to be able to afford him. It would have to be a loan or something, wouldn't it? It would have to be like a... Like a disappointed yeah. dad there, James, the way you say Neymar. As strange as it sounds, as stupid as it sounds, Man United. No, it sounds, honestly, it sounds like they're sort of signing up. It doesn't, actually, because the, man, the way Man United are as a club, it, it's, true. it's the kind of signing they would make. But if I was a United fan, I wouldn't want that. I really wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want Neymar anywhere near my club. Not, I don't care how good he is. His attitude stinks, and uh, frankly, like his attitude. If you if, you, if a transfer value was given based on attitude rather than talent, be on minus. He would be on minus. Yeah, like, yeah. He'll be the least valuable player, one of the least valuable players in world football because he is 
just I, I can't just I can't deal with his attitude. It is know? frustrating as well because I, I I used to watch him a few years ago. I think this was just before he went to PSG. We used to watch him for Brazil and Barcelona in that three, and he was a joy to watch. He was so so good to watch. I remember the goal he scored. I forgot who it was against, but it was for Barcelona. I'm sure one of you will know. And he gets the ball, he receives it, and then he flicks the ball over the defender's head. He spins and he volleys it um, across the goalkeeper. And I thought that was that was I think that might have won La Liga goal of the season. I, if it didn't, I'm I'm a bit gobsmacked actually because I thought it was just incredible. Um, and so and, and when he was younger and he used to, I think he was the Brazil captain. And I remember he played. I think it was the Copa America, and he smashed a. Brilliant goal past an, an inform Ika Casillas at the time, and this was like oh, it was a few years ago now, I think. And, and again, this was before the PSG move, and, before, and while he was at Barcelona, and for a good few years, I, I just I know his attitude was never brilliant. I know he rolled around too much, but the, he was. But again, he was he, he was such a joy to watch, and it was like that Brazilian flair had come back because they ne- they hadn't had a player of his ability for such a long time, and it, it had gone, and they did lack that. And it's so sad to see how it's how it's materializing because. Um, you know, and, it, yeah. and I think it's almost. Ah, it, it, I don't, I'm, I'm exasperated. Carry on, carry on. I'm now. I think. Well, just to finish the episode, <laughs> um, we'll take the Spanish theme, the beach, and we'll go to go to the beach. A Spaniard, a Spaniard, a Spaniard who has uh, recently become unemployed. Um, up in Tyneside, it must have been a big week up in Tyneside. Um, we had Rafa Benitez leave Newcastle United. They couldn't agree a new contract. And he left the club. Um, he's arguing, I think, that he he was willing to have a discussions about extending the contract, and they just and he found out basically, like everyone else did on the media, uh, that he was going. And then the, the club are just saying, "Well, no, 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 he he left." So six to one half than the other. But to be honest, I don't. I'm I'm more inclined to take Rafa Benitez's side, given that the Newcastle owner is um, Mike Ashley and how he treats people. So. What did happen there? Um, it, I remember the. I think it was about three weeks ago to a month ago that he, his representatives and himself were meeting with Newcastle's representatives in London, and Mike Ashley actually didn't go to any of those meetings, and I think that really annoyed Rafa Benitez. Um, and then from then, from those like meetings, they're in London for about three or four days trying to agree a contract, and they couldn't. So it carried on for a couple of weeks, and then I think even though Benitez was happy to still agree a new contract, then Newcastle didn't want to sit down again. So that's what led to this sort of like ugly breakup of Newcastle losing probably the best opportunity they've had to become, to return yeah. to one of the top teams in the Premier League in Rafa Benitez. And it, it's such a shame. And I, I feel like it, we're inclined as football fans, especially of our own club, when, when it's not going our way and we can complain and it's like, this is, this is worse than anything. But like, I do really feel sorry for Newcastle United fans because they've seen how good their club can be they have such a good stadium and they have some really talented players and they had a top manager and now they've lost that again because of you know the greediness or the stubbornness or the the idiot that is Mike Ashley I guess and it's a real sad thing when a football club becomes more about it's not about football anymore do you know what I mean and that's what it's been at Newcastle for far too long now I agree. Newcastle are one of the clubs that I love the outside of my own. They're such a they're a big club, their supporters are incredible, really are. They put up with they put up with a lot. They're a giant. I mean, you know, they're, uh, they're like the definitive sneaking sleeping giant. You know, if they if you're a billionaire looking to buy a club and turn it into a into a super club, they're they're the club you to to look at in England because they've already got a got a huge fan base, massive stadium, um people come you know and and, and I don't know, they're a club I feel like deserve a bit of luck and a bit of success. 
Well, they've been linked with takeovers, haven't they, recently? It's just not quite materialising itself. I mean, still, regardless of the position that they're in now with Mike Ashley, it's still an attractive job for many managers. I mean, as you've already alluded to, uh, amazing fans, amazing stadium, a, a club with heritage. Um, it might not be quite as rosy as it could be. And yes, I do feel sorry for the fans. I do feel that they deserve better uh, than they've been getting and a bit of ambition. All, all Rafa Benitez did want was a bit more money to spend so they could push on for seventh and look and, and, and show a bit of respect to that heritage and, and the club that they're, they're actually a part of and treat it like that. But I do think it's still a job, as I say, that, that, that will be attractive for many managers, maybe not the calibre of managers of Rafa Benitez, but managers certainly at the lower end of Premier League or, or in other or in other divisions that want to chance their arm at a club in England's top flight. Um, you know, I know I know you were talking about Sean Dyche before as a potential option. Yes. You know, it's someone who is used to a tight budget with Burnley, someone who is, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, a really, really fine job uh, with my club, uh, as I say, under those budget restraints, but someone who's also Burnley's highest paid member of staff or at the club, higher paid than any player, which is quite rare, but it shows where the power is and that's probably how it should be. Uh, but it would take Newcastle a lot of money to uh, prize him away from Burnley, I think. So maybe they would look somewhere else. Do you want to come back in, James, and just ask a question? Yeah, so I mean, the people that are linked with the Newcastle job, they were kind of like the joke candidates who would never, who would never take the job. You know, Jose Mourinho, <laughs> unless the club get taken over, would not be candidates. And then we had the big, the candidate that kind of emerged this week as kind of someone who's interested in the job and might be willing to take it was um, Patrick Vieira. Yeah. An interesting appointment. I think he's a talented young manager. I think apparently they're looking at a younger manager with potential rather than another experienced manager. I think maybe that's partly because it's a difficult job to convince an experienced manager to go there because of working with Mark Ashley, whereas it's an opportunity for a younger manager to go to a bigger club. Yeah. But um, but Patrick Vieira, what, I, mean, I think that would be, if he agreed to go there, um, which I'm not sure he would, but you know, there's indications that he's interested. I think that would be a good appointment for them. But what about you guys? Yeah, I, I'm not sure with Vieira. I don't see it as um, as such a big place to go as much as you want to, just because I wouldn't want to work under Mike Ashley. Like, you know, if you're going into that job, you have to be an absolute yes man. You can't kick up a fuss or, as we've seen, you will lose your job or your contract won't get renewed, even though you're doing a good job. Do you know what I mean? So it's a real difficult one because Vieira, even though he's doing a really good job with Nice in France, is he ready for that sort of level to step up to the club the size of Newcastle? I'm not so sure there, but I feel like there is big warning signs with whoever takes over from Rafa Benitez and, and walks into that job just because of how uh, Newcastle are as a club and what they can do and what they will be hoping to achieve, especially what the fans will be hoping for them to achieve. But like you said, they'll be working on such a limited budget, etc. I'm not sure what they can do and if Patrick Vieira is the answer for that. I, d- I don't know. There seems to be so much mystery shrouded around Newcastle at the moment, hence why we haven't really heard that much this week since Rafa Benitez has left. Um, it does just seem to be a massive question mark over what is going to happen. It has to be so frustrating for Newcastle fans, especially with pre-season just around the corner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, they haven't bought any players yet either. And which players are going to want to go there because of the instability at the club? Mm-hmm. It's not an easy time to be a Newcastle fan, that is for sure. Um, it's another difficult summer for them. And I actually said this last this week that a lot of club, a lot of fans have a go at their owners, but I think two of the clubs that we've begun and ended this episode with, mm-hmm. um, Manchester United and Newcastle, I think their owners are just, I mean, crikey, they're just not 
to me, they're, they're, they're awful. You know, I mean, they're, they're taking out of the club, not putting into the club. They're not, they seem to be more interested in profit than in football, you know, and I don't think they're good for the club. Yeah. And I feel for the Newcastle fans, really, because they need Mike Ashley out of the club. Yeah, 100%. And um, I just like to think that it does sort of get worked out and we can sort of start reporting some Newcastle transfer news again. That's, that's what I hope for. Yeah. Yeah, that would be, that'd be really great if, if that happened. Yeah, I, I generally hope that um, they, they, do, they can do that. Yeah. 100%. Well, that's a good way to end, I yeah. think. Um, it's been good discussions today. We've gone, we've gone from the Premier League to Spain to France and back again covered most of this week's stories i think and i'm sure it's going to ramp up now because um we're now into july mm. we're getting into july so this is really with and pre-season is beginning soon for most clubs so all the contracts are going to end and all the new contracts are going to come in so like it will yeah. i feel like there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot to speak about next week um i do think that after monday monday the first yeah i think so yeah that's going to be quite interesting for all of us so um yeah i'm excited about that a hundred percent, hundred percent. It'd be nice to chat about it um, with you both and really get into that because I feel like a lot will happen. So um, yeah, I think it will. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll say bye for this week and make sure everyone tunes in next week. Yeah, look forward to it. Amazing. Goodbye. Bye.